This is Driven by Data, the podcast. Welcome back to another episode of Driven by Data, the podcast, season two, powered by Orbition Group and hosted by me, Kyle Winterbottom. We're delighted to bring you another season of Driven by Data, the podcast, which boasts even more data analytics and AI thought leaders from across the globe. Our aim remains the same to uncover how some of the most prominent leaders within the data analytics community tackle our industry's most trending topics told in order to share knowledge, ideas, and experience, and just as in season one, to give back to the global data and analytics community. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode. Welcome to Driven by Data, the podcast, season two. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Joe Bradley, who is the Chief Scientist, SVP of Data Science and Machine Learning at LivePerson. So, Joe, thank you very much for joining us. Kyle, thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Good. Um, So, Joe, before we start, what you should know is that you are our final and 50th guest of season two. So you're concluding season two for us. Um, and that also makes you the hundredth episode, which um, is a is a pretty good milestone. So there you go. <laughs> I feel like I got some big shoes to fill now. <laughs> let's, let's, let's hope we do well. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm sure we'll, I'm sure we'll be fine. I think we both kind of uh, have a good enough understanding of what we're talking about, or at least uh, you'd like to think so. So um, where we always start, Joe, is by asking our guests to give themselves a, a brief introduction and you know, into their background and I guess journey up until this point, uh, if you'd be so kind. And I'm looking forward to this because there's been some Goliath names on your resume, which uh, always fascinates uh, me. And maybe some weird Davids too, um, or at least <laughs> surprising ones. So yeah, it's a it's a long journey. If we go all the way back, I won't I won't uh, you know won't start at the first breath or anything, but I but I will say it. You know, it, it sort of runs through opera singing and English literature and. Uh, you know, pure mathematics and a, a whole host of and middle school classroom teaching, which far and away was the hardest job I've ever had on every dimension. But I, I, I essentially found myself after after a, a few of those different areas uh, working as a physicist for the national labs for the government for a while. And and uh, at at one point, I decided I wanted to try something new, which is maybe not surprising, given that preamble and was interested in, in kind of broadening out and seeing what's going on in the in the industry or in the commercial sectors of the world and learning about business. And that led me to Amazon. Uh, I worked at Amazon for 
a uh, number of years as a uh, lead scientist for ads targeting, as you know, sort of ran a data science group there in the search experience and tried to personalize search uh, as best we could. This is, this is back 2014, 15, 16, I guess. Uh, moved on from Amazon, worked at Nike and, and led data science there for, you know, kind of understanding of, of the Nike customer base and the Nike membership base, as we called it, as Nike was trying to become this direct-to-consumer uh, sales or create this direct-to-consumer sales engine, which was really interesting. They had sort of made the bet that they, they they had enough brands that they could build direct relationships, and they, I think, have done quite successfully. Um, so glad we've been a small part of that. Uh, and then I moved on and joined LivePerson about four and a half years ago now. It's almost, it, it's almost shocking to say that. It feels like it's been 10 minutes in some ways. Uh, and there I've done... You know, so really built a, a data science and machine learning function there uh, to work on the, all the language and all the language data that we have. Uh, and we built a conversational AI capability I, with a, a number of technology partners. Uh, you know, we built out, we, we, took, we took this company from uh, a company that was really about human to human connections only uh, and was really kind of a, a, a messaging and, and chat platform connecting people. And we turned it into uh, a system that you know not only has that, but also leverages everything you need to know to do that well to help you build uh, conversational systems to talk to your customers or to help your agents on your side as a brand uh, do that better. Uh, and that's a whole host of applications, and, and it's been it's been a wild and fun ride to to kind of build all that together with partners over the last few years. Yeah, nice, nice. Um, so for anyone that doesn't know live person then as a business and as a as a brand just give us the kind of high level on you know who they are what they do etc yeah so uh live person is a over over i think 25 year old company now um and it you know for a lot of its lifespan was kind of an internet chat company right so the the chat box on the lower right of your web browser like do you want to chat with the with an agent uh, that was really invented by LivePerson, is uh, our, our CEO, I think, correctly credits himself with that. Uh, and but but that was never sort of the end game. That's that was a, a step along the business path. So so what we become now is a platform that allows you know agents on the brand side to talk to their customers uh, through a variety of different media, uh, including you know all the, really all the messaging channels you can think of or that have any real volume in them. Uh, of course, we still do web chat, though we do a lot less of that now. It's a pretty small part of our business these days, uh, and increasingly in the voice channels as well. Uh, and on top of that, there's also all these tools and capabilities you can use to build conversational agents, virtual agents that can talk to your customers for you, or they can talk to your agents and help them. Um, and our mission, really, if you want to boil it down, is to help brands become more customer-centric, help brands deliver a great experience to their customers so that, you know, all of us don't have to sort of get frustrated every time we want to talk to the companies that we have to deal with in our lives and instead have kind of a, a good experience and, and feel a little bit more connected to them and, and feel like they're listening and they care about the, the real problems that we have. Yeah, absolutely. Well, kudos to you and, and live person, Joe, because um, I probably had an experience this week with a a major UK telco company who, you know, we'll, we'll mention no names, but I was trying to use their chat function and, you know, you just get stuck in these loop of 
they can't understand the question you're answer, asking, oh, so they yeah. keep bouncing you back, and then they they kind of give you options. And I'm looking at them, going, "Well, it's none of those options. <laughs> so where do I go from here?" And then you have to call them, right? So um, yeah, at least yeah. someone's out there trying to fix fix these problems. And I'm sure we're going to get into what good looks like or what ugly looks like, maybe um, throughout the throughout the show. Before we do that, just tell us a little bit about your role. I guess what you were brought in to do. You know what you're tasked with achieving, and kind of guess how that relates to the strategy of the business you know from where it's been to where it wants to go yeah yeah well it's changed over time right i, I kind of came in to you know with the first mission of build a data science and machine learning function to use this we've we have probably uh or not probably we have over a billion conversations that come through the platform every year and a billion interactions each month so that that's a tremendous data source you know these are all goal-oriented dialogues which if you're into the academic world as well, um, are a scarce resource for most people. So that that's one of the exciting things about working at Live First is you have this incredible data source you can't really find. You can really find almost nowhere else. Um, but we weren't doing anything with it four years ago, right? There really wasn't a lot of um, uh, activity around it, and we didn't have the right professionals to do the work. So so that was kind of mission one was to build uh, the function up, and then figure out how we wanted to productize that. And so we we spent some time productizing natural language understanding, I think in unique and meaningful ways, again, towards this like customer centricity sort of mission. Uh, and and then over time, you know, pieces kind of came in and out of my sphere. So I've done this, you know, I've done things like run the data platform for the company for a while. Uh, and more recently, we, we've decided to take together not only the science, but also all of the technology. We've always kind of built products in my organization, but we've, we've taken all the conversational AI technology and, and bundled it into one big group, which it's been really interesting to, you know, sort of try and get get one's arms around. So that, that's really been the last six months. So uh, so yeah, my, that, that's kind of my job now. It's a little bit of a mix of technology, mix of product, mix of science, which which for me is fun. I like to be challenged and sort of try to try to learn to do or try to learn from smart people how to do new things yeah yeah absolutely so i guess is this um external brands that are coming to you is it kind of a a service or you know how, how is it or is it a technology they they buy from it's you a product, how, how, right? so they right? come in and they yeah. buy the platform they buy uses of the right. platform it's a big SaaS product yeah uh, and you know they turn it on of course for these big enterprises they have as you probably know they have many multifaceted and very intricate set of desires for how they want to use the product. So it's it's enterprise software in the sense that it, you you can really, you know, you can use it out of the box, works great, but then it's it's very open, very API driven. So you can uh, configure it as you need to, you know, the software development kits that, that you can use as a brand to really customize it however you want, um, in addition to the API layers kind of work on directly. Uh, so you get, you know, you get the staff product, you get the set of tools for building AI and and you know you get a set of analytics that you can use across kind of all the media, and uh, and then you sort of go to town. Sometimes some brands use you know have a have a more robust professional services relationship with us or through us with other companies. Some brands really want to work on their own and just uh, thanks, I'll take the platform, I'm good. You know it, it kind of yep. depends. Try to serve all those use cases. Yep, yep, perfect. Um, cool. So I guess conversational AI, it's been around a while, but you know, we're really starting to kind of see it more and more, especially with this whole kind of wave of digital transformation or whatever we're, we're, we're kind of calling it now, right? I guess just give us the high level overview as the expert in this space, kind of what is it and what are the business benefits? You mentioned, obviously, it's to drive 
customer centricity and better customer experience and all of that type of stuff. But but just kind of right. give us the high level. Well, it's a little bit of a tale of two. I don't even know. Uh, it, 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 let's say tale of two disciplines in some ways. Um, I think if you follow the news media and you follow even also if you follow the academic narrative closely, it's you know you get this impression that we basically solve these problems like hey Google has built a sentient you know chat system right so so it sounds like there's not much left to do uh, it sounds like we're you know we're sort of at the at the point in reality or in time when computers are about to start talking to us and will solve all our problems for us and we sort of entered the Star Trek era <laughs> but if you look around and and tally the experiences you have with systems like this, it feels quite different, right? So the the reality of the industry and of the the experiences that are out there today, like really don't match, right? That that narrative is really different there. And there are a number of technical, business, and academic reasons behind that. But I would say what you know where I see the industry right now is. It, it's still it's it's in a place where if you're a company that wants to do this and wants to work with your customers using these virtual agents or using a conversational AI system, um, you still got some elbow grease you got to go put in. You still got to think about this in the same way that you think about any experience that you build. Uh, you, but you got to start thinking about new concepts, right? Now you have to think about natural language understanding. What do you want to do with that? What does it mean to understand intents? What are the intents that are important to your business? Now you got to think about dialogue management. You got to think about error handling, right? So instead of, you know, instead of thinking about what do I do with my 500s on my website? What do I do when my search query doesn't yield any results, which are problems that brands have become accustomed to solving if they if they develop these experiences? You got to think about what happens when the conversation goes in a way that I don't expect and and what happens when I need to disambiguate what a user is saying. And so so a lot of the <laughs> I think a lot of the brands that try and do not succeed in this area, and, and I think we all have had experiences with conversational systems of brands who've tried and not succeeded, it boils down to a mistaken belief that this is a kind of one and done operation, right? That I'm going to go in, I'm going to, you know, I have to take three smart people in a room or maybe a team of five data scientists, put them in a room, and they're going to come out with the this this thing that now does all my conversations, I'm going to turn it on, it's going to work great, and, and, and then we're done, right? You would never think about any other experience that you're creating for a customer as a brand in that way, right? It would be insane at this point to think like, oh, I'm going to go build a website and I'm done. Like, oh, that'll take a couple of weeks and we're, we're through it. Uh, so, so I think that's an important piece of this. And I think you do need to educate yourself as a business when you take this on. And, and you know, you need to... Like, another important piece of this is as you educate yourself and as you learn from people that are selling you products like this or you know whoever you're talking to you got to investigate the knowledge right you got to be confident enough and and willing to demand that what people tell you conforms to your own understanding and a lot of times when things get data science and machine learning heavy or ai heavy i, I definitely see this tendency in business leaders to to kind of back away and say well you're the expert and that's a, that's sort of another like real danger zone um, for business in this space. Mm, yeah, yeah, very good point. I think, to be honest, there's been many a business that I've probably been guilty of <laughs> when they go on this data analytics journey. You know, we'll just build a platform and then everyone will come and it'll be fine, right? You know, it's almost like they just they think it's a, as you said, a, a kind of one time thing and um, 
you know, and then they get the benefit and the value out of it, right? But really, we all know it's a an iterative process that needs to kind of keep being improved till you get to the point of that it really works for the use that you want it to work for, which is is interesting. Doesn't help, obviously, of course, the amount of hype around artificial intelligence in general, right? And even before that kind of right. ML data science, you know, the, there was this kind of combustion of hype around that kind of discipline, which led many businesses just to jump feet first into that without really kind of configuring what was what needed to be done before they were ready to get to that point, if that makes sense. Um, yeah, I mean, I think if you go and listen to, you know, I listen to a lot of sort of podcasts like this, actually, right? And there's they, they oftentimes times come in two categories, right? There's some where there's, you know, you're like you, where you can really understand and, and and you can write out the five things that surprised you or were interesting to you or meaningful to you about that you learned from that. And then there are others that, you know, feel like alphabet soup of, you know, jargon and buzzwords. And there's a lot of those, right? And it gets, it gets, uh, I think, you, you know, you, you got to keep that filter on as someone, you got to be, first of all, you got to be willing to learn what the discipline is and what the major constituents of it are, right? You can't kind of hide it from yourself. You got to keep that filter on when, when trying to, or like when, when, when listening or when communicating it, like if it doesn't make sense to you, if you can't, if you can't turn this into something that you understand, then it's not your fault. It's whoever you're listening to, it's whoever you're talking to. They haven't done their job yet. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, <laughs> it always fascinates me because, you know, we've all heard and seen stories right around, you know, business leaders saying, well, can, can we do AI on that? <laughs> right. You know, as the, right. as the old joke goes. But um, I guess in terms of conversational AI, then, and this specific conversation, who is this really for? Like when you break it down, and, and I appreciate any brand theoretically could do this sure. if they chose sure. to do it, right? But well, yeah. where do you see the real success coming from in terms of who's doing it versus who's not versus maybe who should be thinking about it? Like how do you try and right. piece all right. of that together? Right. Well, I think, yeah, it's a great question. And there are different answers for different use cases, right? And I think there probably are use cases that in situations that are well set up versus those that aren't. Um, so I think obviously we all know about the um, you know the virtual assistant use cases. We've got the Amazon or the Google devices, you know. So so that's a set of use cases that are I think interesting, but probably haven't progressed uh, in a lot of ways as fast as most of us would want, right? Still still really good at turning on and off lights. Still really good at playing music, but but how many use cases? You know, good for kids' games too. That's kind of a fun one that I've noticed as as my kids are growing <laughs> up. Um, but how many, you know, how how deeply integrated are these things into your life in in all cases, right? I think I think for some people there are the occasional users where they really are, but then uh, for for a lot these are for a lot of us these are you know relatively on the sidebar. Uh, but that's so that's like a whole set of use cases over there. I think I think when you talk about you know brand and consumer interactions, there's there's probably a couple different categories to break things into. On the one hand, you you know you might have a you know, big enterprise that wants to invest in, you know, sort of where we work, or a big enterprise that wants to invest in really automating as many of its interactions as possible and making that a great customer experience at the same time. And some of these interactions are complex, right? Gathering a bunch of information to understand if you've got fraud uh, happening to your bank account is, it's a useful case, but there's a lot of complexity to that. Even breaking down a telecom telecommunications bill, which is the typically buy and far and away the largest reason people call up their telcos 
Uh, even that is quite complex because you usually have these systems that don't have good APIs and yada yada. But if you're a brand, you know, if you're a major brand and you want to go do that and you want to get moving on that journey, you can. It'll take some effort and some work. You're going to put some development into it, but but you can be quite successful. Uh, I think if you're a smaller brand, you know, you want to pick and choose your spots, right? So, uh, you know, there, there are good systems out there for reservation building if you're a or reservation management if you're a um if you're a restaurant right there's there's good scheduling applications out there um you know you can you can link some of these conversational systems really quickly into web uxs uh and, and you can create a good experience that's limited in scope but smart about escaping the scope in the right way and that's really what you got to watch out for if you're one of these really in both cases but but if you're trying to do a limited scope system you know you want to make sure you want to kind of obsess over the experience of what happens when my limited scope system can't solve the problem and does getting out of it is getting out of it awful or not. Uh, mm -hmm. So, so I would, I mean, I, I think th those are some of the dynamics that I see. Is there, and I guess this will be hugely subjective, but is there a point when you see organizations typically are more ready to implement this than, than others? Is there a kind of, you know, uh, almost like a, a benchmark of, Yes, this yeah. can work versus like, look, this is going to take you a year to build all of the, you know, everything you need underneath this to make it even worth your while. Well, and I mean, some of these organizations, like a year is a fast time frame. Go talk to a major bank and do something in a year. <laughs> yeah, like, oh, true. hold on. That's lightning speed, right? <laughs> that's so, so, you know, it, like there's that dynamic to it too. I mean, I would say a lot of it boils down to, um, you know, the way businesses are organized. And, and the way they want to manage this stuff, especially for the big enterprises. So, so the the success stories and the failure stories often pivot on things like, uh, do you have a contact center management team over here whose job it is, who's been historically paid to handle lots of conversations efficiently, right? And it's got a whole, you have a whole incentive structure from the executive class all the way down to the people handling the conversations that's firmly in place. And then do you have over on the side you know, someone whose job it is to go and digitally disrupt all that, uh, guess what? That's probably not typically a real good recipe for solving this problem because you've taken leader one and you've pitted them against leader two uh, in a way that, that you know, the, the machinery is not going to want to stop, right? So so the, the companies that have done this successfully have made the problem of automation the problem of the leader who is who is also in charge of the current state of the system and the current customer interactions, right? So they've begun to merge those things together. Uh, so I think that's a very big, uh, it, it, you know, litmus test. Let's say for are you ready for success? Uh, as I mentioned before, you do want to have a clear understanding of what you're getting into, right? So you want to make sure you're getting good advice and good um, guidance on given what you want to do. Given the data you have today, the level of effort that it's going to take to really do what you want, uh, and you need to plan for that the right way. So the other another failure mode is the what we talked about before. You know, I'm going to be one and done in six weeks, and that's it. Now you can be up and running on a good platform in six weeks and start to start to do meaningful work. But to get where most of these companies want to go, you know, that is a little bit more of a longer term process. And then I guess the last piece I'd say is. Do you really have clarity on what a successful customer experience is and how you see it and how you measure that? There are a lot of old concepts in this industry 
that are kind of disastrous and that lead to really bad experiences. The, the concept of containment is one of these concepts. It is a disaster to think about containing your customers. I mean, just, just imagine, just even imagine the metaphor for a minute. Do I want to be contained in a little tiny box? I do not, right? That, that, that sucks. Uh, and and then if you look at the mechanics of how you know people are managed when when that's the metric that everyone's kind of driving towards, you end up uh, it ends up being really dissatisfying. I can't tell you how many times I've had the conversation. Uh, I walk into a, a company, I go and visit our clients all the time, and and they tell me, yeah, no, we've got this chatbot going, it's working great, it's got eighty percent containment, you know, it's covering all the interactions. I'm like, that's amazing. What did you do? with the 80% of capacity you just freed up in all the humans that were taking those conversations before. And then the, the answer isn't very, well, okay, so w- there's actually more conversations coming into the humans now, but the, the bot's doing great, right? So a lot of this is a function of just really not, you know, becoming a customer-centric company, right? Really not orienting yourself around the experience and instead trying to orient yourself around like a cost savings number. And you got to, course you gotta you can't waste money as a business but you gotta have a view that allows the cost savings to be a byproduct of solving problems for people and you know and you gotta you gotta keep yourself safe but your north star has to be you know what does it feel like to use this do i get done what i want to get done does it work yeah yeah it was just, it, interesting you said that joe because i think my next question was going to be typically why do businesses do this obviously the customer centricity and having a great sure. customer experience obviously is is key right but i'm sure as per a lot of the you know scaremongering in the media about ai taking our jobs like this could very well be viewed as that right you know if if call center folk are then made redundant on the fact that there is now a bot or a system that can theoretically do that work in instead is right. does, do you see that as a driver is cost savings unfortunately often a driver for a lot of businesses so i would say that i mean yes it's it's naive to say that businesses don't care about cost savings i think that when you are sort of ruthlessly or 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 wholly focused on an efficiency in a different part of your business, it it leads you in directions that actually hurt you in a business in the long run or even in the short run sometimes. Uh, and so the the companies that I think do this the best are companies that see every customer interaction as an opportunity to build loyalty, to grow their brand, and to grow their product sales, right? And they begin to weave some of these what have been disparate experiences in the past together, right? So to think about uh, a, a customer coming to you with a problem as an opportunity to create a sale, you know, not because you're going to go fool them or anything, but because maybe that problem needs a solution that includes your products, right? Like maybe the problem they're having is they've got the wrong cell phone plan and they actually need a little bit more expensive cell phone plan because they're going way over their data and they're spending and they're angry because they're spending $40 more a month, but really they could spend $10 more a month and, you know, and, and, and they could be happier and you could have deepened your relationship with them and help them solve their problem. Right. So, so the best companies I think are not wholly focused on cost. Uh, they're, they're focused on growth and they see the conversational interaction as a way to do that. And, and they start to reorient, you know, their whole business model a little bit around that. 
Uh, in the same way that you might have a website that where customers can go and, and get FAQs, but can also buy products from you, right? It's not, it's actually not that different. Uh, but there are, you know, to your point, there's still, of course, conversations you want to automate that are of low value and are of low value, not only for you as a business, but they're also of low value for the humans you have talking to your customers, for the agents you have. And the most, most, con most contact center agents don't want to sit there and do password change requests all day, right? They don't want to sit there and process payments all day. They get more interested when they're trying to solve a customer really who has a who has a hard problem to solve. And a lot of what these systems do is they put they move those conversations to the forefront for the people, uh, and they give them greater value. And they also start to give them greater skills. So what what does what also happens? I've seen this uh, in several brands. Uh, it's quite common now. Is the contact center agents that understand the conversations the best are also uniquely situated to help uh, in the automation process. Um, so, so they end up with new jobs that are technology-focused jobs and a little bit higher skill set. There's sort of a there's sort of a career path there. And I guess the last thing I'll say on this subject is not everybody does this the same way. There are big brands that want to have fully automated conversations, and then there are big brands that want to think about the AI, quote unquote, as a support structure for their own human agents. And they want to they want to create really great experiences with really high efficiency, you know, that the humans are orchestrating with the other humans because they believe in that connection at this point. And, and so so, you know, this is a, it's a pretty heterogeneous set of options. I don't see, you know, for brands that are really successful at this, we don't we don't see a situation where there's like massive layoffs that ensue. We see a situation that's more like over time, their customer experiences get better. Their loyalty gets better. They start to like treat these systems as a growth engine and they start to be able to measure and see the growth and in, you know, in sales or in loyalty, you know, here, and they start to see the value of what becomes a cost center, you know, over time migrates to like a growth opportunity for the company. Yeah. I mean, that example that you just gave there makes perfect sense, right? And is very clear and obvious what the benefits would be for, a, for an organization from a customer experience perspective. If you can get rid of, you know, all of the kind of minor low value kind of things that come into those call centers, you know, and you can kind of put them into a system that can deal with that, that then frees up the time for these agents to actually deal with more complex problems where there's a bigger opportunity to as you said, create loyalty and maybe even, you know, expand the relationship or whatever, you know, create a sale, whatever the case may be. That makes that makes perfect sense. Yeah. Um, obviously, not all systems, Joe, are created equal. Right. Uh, so so what are some of the pros? If let's say, for example, there's, there's people out there that are thinking about incorporating this into their business. Right. What are the what are the right. pros and cons of some of these systems? I guess what, what are the some of the kind of gotchas or, you know, things to look yeah. out for yeah. around this? Yeah, I mean, I'm probably not going to run down through our competitors and tell you why they're terrible. Like that, <laughs> that, that seems irresponsible of me to do. And why would you believe me anyway? Um, but they are terrible. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I, there's there's a lot of good systems out there. But what you want, I think, you know, some of the stuff we already talked about. This, so the, the big areas of gotchas are like begin with, do I know what success is? Um, so you have a history in these companies of, of you know, sometimes good, sometimes bad. Uh, understanding of what a successful human interaction looks like and, and how they measure that and how they incentivize personnel to do that. And, and I mean, it. like sometimes they are really 
uh, misleading and, and, and not good, but other, other companies have things figured out fairly well. Uh, you should take that same level of discipline and rigor into the conversational AI space because fundamentally you have to answer, was this a good conversation or not? And, and that's not even a very easy thing to uh, for humans to agree on. So if, if you give that question, we've done this, if you give that question to a set of annotators, professional annotators, even start to put some structure around like, well, here are some examples of good conversations. Here are some dimensions we think are good, right? You 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 typically get to about 65% agreement on even just the good or bad question, right? So there's solidly 30, 40% of the conversations, people just disagree whether they were good experience or not. So, so if you're not obsessed over that problem, and if you don't have tools that can help you obsess over that problem, then you're you're just not going to succeed. Uh, and you're going to have to, it's going to take you time. That's another thing that can take you some time and some thinking to learn and, and some interrogation. You know, it shouldn't just come out of the box. Like what should come out of the box should be really easy to understand and use. And should give you a bunch of metrics that, that relate your existing understanding of how these systems, you know, the contact center system works to some new metrics that are specific for automation. And you should see how those kind of weave together. Uh, like the, the system should give you that and it should give you the opportunity to go and learn and make that easy for you. The other area that you should demand from a platform and that will, will help you be much more successful, much faster is creating utility out of your data. Obviously, this is related, but if you're going to build systems like this, you're going to have a, a ton of conversational data that's generated, whether it's human to human or human to machine. And you want systems that allow you to use that data really efficiently, right? So so we we tried to do this with natural language understanding. I went, I went to brands and, you know, I heard them tell me a, a few times when I first started at LivePerson, you know, it's great. We got a data lake. We're getting the conversation data into it. We're starting to look at the intense, you know, it's only been nine months and we're almost at the point, we've got some patterns that we're willing to match. And we're almost at the point where we can get started. And so, you know, those kinds of things, those kinds of things should take you, uh, you know, days to weeks at most to, to start to tame your data and start to understand how to use it. And the last thing you want from a system, there's probably more, but the third thing you want from a system is you want to be able to use the people that you have already managing the conversations to make the system better. And you want to scale that out a little bit. So if you know, if someone shows up to you with and says, I've got a black box, we're going to dump your data in it. It's going to make everything, you're going to make all these great conversations happen for you. You're not going to have to do any work and and you're not, we, we don't need to talk to anybody and, you know, who's managing the conversations today to do any of this. Really, we just need the data. Thank you. They probably have snake oil in that box, right? That's probably not really that good a product. And there were a lot of startups that tried to do this over the last four or five years and uh, they, they are not generally successful enterprises. So, so if you're, what you want is you want things like, can the agents that I have on the floor today, can they be part of the annotation process for the intent understanding, right? Can they be part of the annotation process for helping the system understand when the dialogue reached a dead end? Can they, can they be part of the escape hatch for these systems? And is all that, can I wire all that up in a way that, that really makes sense and I can understand and, and I believe in? Uh, and, and so if you're not getting those things, I think from systems like this, you're not you know, in a certain sense, you're just not using what you have and, and you should be nervous about it. Yeah. I mean, that makes that makes perfect sense on the premise that it's no different to most conversations that we have across the data and analytics spectrum, right? You know, like domain knowledge is really right. useful 
right? It doesn't matter how you slice or dice it. That's just the, the fact because the context around the problem you're trying to solve, your relationship with your customers, et cetera, et cetera. That well, all and kind if you, of... it, sorry to interrupt you, but if you think about it, you've invested as a company a bunch of money instilling this domain knowledge into these people, right? You created a resource there. And so if you think for a second that you're not going to get value out of using that resource, or if you think the the way forward is to simply, you know, divest of all that, assume that it is valueless, then you just from a basic economic standpoint, you're like, I'm not, how can I possibly be getting the most out of this? Like I spent $10 million educating all these people over the last year and a half or however much it is, you know, I want some benefit from that 10 million. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I guess it's it's like anything, right? With anything in the advanced analytics or AI world, if to your point, which I really liked earlier was, you know, you've got to, you've got to have the the kind of the right data in place. You've got to have the right, um, you know, setup for customer experience. You need to know what good looks like, because as with anything, you can let, you can, you can let AI loose on a lot of things, but if it's not good, it's only going to make it worse faster. <laughs> right? right. So, right. So, so that's, uh, yeah, really, really. I mean, we of... all have the terror stories of like the Tabot from eight or 10 years ago, right? The, the, the sort of end to end dialogue systems that, that quickly become racist because they're trained on Twitter data, right? There's, yeah. there's a lot of bias. Actually, I'll give you a really fun example um, that, that we spotted. In, with one of our customers, um, thankfully, before it was, you know, it, it, it did any damage. Um, so our customers decided the, the, the brand wanted to do, I'm not going to say who the brand is, the brand <laughs> wanted to do a, a profanity detector, right? Because they wanted to understand when customers were mistreating their agents, right? And when their agents might be mistreating their customers. Very reasonable thing to do, good to know about. And you probably want to take some action when you find it. So they trained a model. Uh, and, and what they found was that, you know, what essentially they did because of the way that they set up the model and the way that they had, they'd used the platform was they ended up building uh, it, what, what you might call an out of vocabulary detector. Now, and I didn't have to do it this way. There's there's models in the platform they could have used and we sort of moved them onto those so, so it all worked better. But, but they, they they sort of used a simpler version of what we had. And, and this kind of stuff can happen all the time. Uh, so and what that means is this they, they end up building a model. It was just looking for any conversations that had words in it that the model didn't understand. That's what profanity actually ended up meaning to the model. And so, so what that what the outgrowth of that was was that when someone came in and taught, spoke Spanish into the chat window, this particular model didn't know Spanish, so it assumed all of that was profanity. Right? <laughs> so, so that's you know that. These yeah. outcomes that, you know, that's, that's not quite uh, as good an example as the, the racist, you know, Twitter bot. But, uh, but I think it's, you know, if, if you're not thoughtful about this stuff and if you don't, you know, if you, if you kind of run and gun too quickly in the wrong ways, um, you can, you can create bad customer experiences. Um, mm. and yeah, yeah. Well, I, I guess I'll, I'll pause it there. Sorry. I got, got lost on a tangent there. No, it's all right. It's no problem. Um, Obviously, personalization has been kind of a thread through your career, especially at those big brands of, of Amazon and, and Nike, right? Yeah. Is there a, is the relationship kind of um, relevant for conversational AI? Is that something that we've yeah. gotten to yet in terms of allowing these these systems to you know personalize based on who they're speaking to? I mean, what I would say is personalization is fundamentally different and better in a conversational a, a conversational environment. 
whether whether it's AI or not, uh, and and it's I don't mean just better for the business. I also mean better for the customer. So I think we all also know the stories of the, you know, the department store that that infers that a woman is pregnant and sends a mailer, and her dad gets it and didn't know she was pregnant. Right. So yeah. there's these 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 really terrifying or, or or just kind of awful examples of personalization going wrong. Uh, and what the conversational systems allow you to do, or what a conversational interaction allows you to do, is is really work with the information that a customer wants to share with you. And it's all very implicit in a conversational environment. So, so um, I think one of my favorite examples is a woman talking to an e-retailer uh, and sharing that she's shopping for her, I think it's like seven grandkids and three great grandkids for late holiday shopping. She's a Christmas shopper and she's, she's missed Christmas. And she's asking them to help with all this, all this shopping, right? And, and there are a, a range of things that might be helpful to this woman that she's really, she's really opening up and asking about, right? So, so her problem is, I got a lot of people to shop for, and I need some help doing it. And I missed Christmas, and I feel bad about that. It's like, okay, obviously, I can help you shop for Christmas for late Christmas now. But I can also help you, you know, do you want to do you want us to remember when their birthdays are for you or not? Do you want us to give you ideas about, you know, flash sales that might come up where you can buy a lot of different stuff, you know, all at once and, and be ready for the next time or not? Right. But but she's opened the box. She's asking in, in conversation. People start to ask about what they really want a little bit more. And, and I think, uh, you know, you've got to be careful and thoughtful about consent. But the point, the whole point of conversation is you can be careful and thoughtful about consent in that moment, right? You can ask, are you, you know, can I do this? Would this be helpful? Do you want me to, do you want me to remember, to remember this? So I think one way I like to put it sometimes is, um, you know, I used to, one of my favorite interview questions when I would interview scientists at Amazon was I would ask them to build me uh, a, a, you know, a holiday gift shopper detector, right? I'd say, well, what would you do if you're, you know, let's say you had the, Let's say you had the website data and you're trying to figure out, like, can some, you know, are they shopping for gifts or just gifts in general? And there's all these smart things you can do to kind of infer what, um, what, what, whether or not that customer is looking for a gift. Now, in a conversational setting, they just tell you. Right. So now all the machine learning is really just about, if you're doing that at scale, the machine learning is just about understanding the language. Right. But there's no issue of, are they, you know, do they want me to know that? Like they said it, they want you to know it. Yeah, that makes, uh, yeah, makes sense. Really, really interesting actually, isn't it? When you think about this stuff, because this stuff happens all around you and it's not something that you actually pay much attention to, right? Which is right. Uh, fascinating, yeah. I guess how I does think this... when you don't, when you don't have control over it or when it transgresses boundaries that you don't want it to transgress, right? When I do a web search for something, and you know, for a lawnmower, and then I see lawnmower ads on some other device, you know, at some other time, you know, I get uncomfortable with that. I, I don't like that there's a system out there that's tracking my footprint around. But if I'm having a conversation or an interaction in one place, and that information that I'm choosing to share is being used in that context in a way that's helpful, that's great, right? I want some control over that. One of the things that Live Person cares a lot about, and I think we'll, we'll productize this more and more as we go on. And one of the, the way that we see the world is that 
personal, like part of an effective personalization product should be about you as a consumer being able to control what's going on with your data, right? That that in fact is a valuable aspect of the product that, I, that I, consumers want this. They want it in a way that's easy to understand and that works, but that you shouldn't see that as a, as a detriment or a limiter to personalization. You should actually see that as an aspect of personalization that allows you to generate trust, loyalty, business growth. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I guess in terms of building the capability to to do this, obviously in your case, for other organizations, but I'm sure there's plenty of organizations out there trying to do this for themselves in some way, shape or form, right? Is there any difference around just building a general data science or ML capability beyond the types of data scientists that you need to hire? Or is it pretty much the same? Is there anything to think about in that regard? Yeah, I mean, conversational is different, uh, in part because of this, you know, we talked about the tale of two disciplines, uh, in part because it's not just a data science problem yet, even though it it does have a lot of machine learning, of course, right? Of course, that's a meaningful aspect, but you still, you know, we still employ, or not still, we employ taxonomists, we employ people with strong linguistics backgrounds, right? You you have to build, if you're going to build a conversational uh, discipline at your company, you have to kind of build in some of these um, adjacent fields uh, as well. And they may not all, so they're not all machine learning people. Now, of course, you really also want machine learning people. These these big language models uh, and these big transformer models now are amazing. They're doing all sorts of things, both in the conversational domain and elsewhere. Uh, so, so you don't want to you don't want to shirk on that. But but I didn't hire those kind of people very often. You know, at, at let's say at Nike, right there, there was a that was a real different kind of problem. It was more of the signals and signal processing. Well, I don't mean signal processing in the in the RF sense or anything. Sorry, that's confusing. Yeah. But it was more of a web signals and, and understanding and recommender and and those sorts of things. So so I think you probably have a little broader range of professionals. I uh, I think there are. I think you also often need just to back out of the question or back back up a little bit. I think you also often need different kinds of leaders and different kinds of companies. So I think if you're gonna if you're gonna be like a like let's say a Nike or or a you know well that Nike now has a lot more experience, but if you're a big company that doesn't have a lot of experience with this kind of discipline, you're gonna need to hire a business leader who also understands the technology well to to kind of bring it into your organization. Right? There's gonna be a lot of problems you need to solve that are really around the organization accepting you know the new stimulus to the new input or the new mm -hmm. system uh if you're you know a big tech company that kind of grew up doing this natively you might you, you know that same level in the hierarchy they might they might not need any of those same skills to to kind of like go and massage your corporate entity and corporate structure to get things done right you might be hiring people with, that are a lot more focused because that's already sort of woven into your dna a bit and of course if you're a startup you know you need you, you need all these people that are are very ambidextrous and can, you know, think about products and technology and engineering and business, right? All kind of in one and and put their hands on the keyboard and do stuff. So, so yeah, I do think it's another place where there's like quite a lot of heterogeneity. Um, and and you know, you, as a business, you got to take a little stock of yourself and, and and ask the personnel questions. Not that different from how you might ask them you know, for other new, new entities or, or new things you want to take on. Yeah, absolutely. Obviously, part of your career, Joe, has been, you know, 
helping organizations to scale machine learning across its business, right, to make it better, whatever the case may be. Um, sure. Are there any major differences that you've seen in terms of doing it at major global brands like Amazon and Nike versus some of the smaller businesses? Obviously, apart from, you know, the, the sure. resource that you, <laughs> that you might have to, to do it. Yeah, I mean, I think so. I think it does start there. I think it starts with who's leading it and what's their agenda and and how you know how internally focused do they need to be? How you know like like it kind of filters down from you know who do they to to who do they need to hire and and what does that team need to look like? There are definitely some gotchas I've seen consistently. I I think when you have teams that when you have data science teams that put themselves in a little bit too much of an ivory tower scenario, right? When they distance themselves from the business, um, I, I think that creates problems. I, I think we do sometimes as scientists see ourselves as artists in a way. And, and I think there's a beauty in it in a, in a reality of that there's a truth to that, that you, you do have to kind of be creative and find inspiration in science. It's not, you know, you're, you're not just making license plates. It's not actually only a technical, like scientists are different from engineers. That is a true thing. Um, the personality types, you know, you, there's there's data on this. It's it's legit. But I think that doesn't, for me, translate to the notion that you can't sort of describe and report on and like kind of manage the scientific process in meaningful ways, right? So if you're if your uh, you know team is of a mind that you know that you you kind of just got to wait for them to come back with the inspiration and they're going to tell you you know the beautiful truth out there, like and and just let just just trust us we're going to do it no no i don't need to check in weekly or anything like that like it's we're we're going to go be inspired like that's probably too loose and and i i've definitely seen that failure mode and and i think if they're not tied to real business outcomes in a direct way that everyone understands and it doesn't necessarily mean you give them a pnl that's that's not what i mean but but if the work's not going into a product that people can see and understand the value of then you know, that's a risky scenario, both for the business and for the team you're trying to build, because eventually times get tight. Times are tight right now. People start looking for stuff to cut. And then they look at the teams that are in that situation. And it's one of the first things that goes on the chopping block. And, and, it, and it, you know, all the indirect expression of the value in the world, you know, doesn't convince a business leader who needs to go take $10 million out of a piece of their business that they can't, right? What does convince them is like, well, we turn off this team, we're gonna break this product and that product is part of the sales engine. So, hey man, like, what do you wanna do, right? That's that's the kind of tangibility that they need. So it's a bit of a protection mechanism as well, uh, but also very healthy, right? Like you learn as a scientist quite a bit more if you're tied into the user experience and, and getting that feedback through, through a product, like you do better work. Yeah. Yeah, I mean that's something that I've seen. Obviously, in terms of the work that that we do day to day, you know, people's wants, needs, and desires for the types of opportunities that they may be looking for now are very kind of very closely related to that work being visible, valuable, and impactful. You know, because I think yeah. many, unfortunately, many data scientists and other titles from within our industry have you know almost felt like they've been in a on a production line a project comes in they finish it you know they they do what's asked them to do 
it goes off it's out right. in the, into the ether and it's a case of was it used was it not was it good was it bad there's no feedback loop and you know it's just a continuous cycle of of that and that visibility well, of the work that they do is, is non-existent well yeah and you and like we we've, we've gone beyond that for engineers right we we have the agile processes if you think about it are the way that we've moved past the assembly line right we, we don't do waterfall anymore or most people don't and you don't have the engineer in a little cubicle just taking stuff in and pushing <laughs> it out, right? That that isn't how it works because it doesn't. You don't build good stuff that way. You don't build. You don't work fast, and you don't iterate. So, the science really can't be any different. Now, there are legitimate differences about risks and you know the amount of success versus failure in a science project. By definition, you should not expect. You know, you should expect a higher failure rate in projects that are more focused on cutting edge science. Like that's just a fact of life. And, and as a company, you need to be able to accept that. You need to factor that in and you can't, you know, you can't overreact to those failures. That's a huge, that's another huge failure mode. It's like, you, you know, this one didn't work. Ah, state of science is no, no good for us. Right. Like it, it, you, you know, you will see, you will fail more than you will with an engineering product. Doesn't mean you fail all the time, but you, you kind of have to have some way that you can, manage that uh as a corporation and, and be okay with that yeah absolutely that makes sense i mean i have the conversation quite a lot but it's no it's no different if you think about it from i don't know the pharmaceutical industry right and drug development sure. like the, these companies spend all of their time failing and all it yeah. takes is that one thing that comes right and it makes them billions of dollars right so it's that's yeah. just the nature of the game i guess which is yeah the same here but for some reason we're struggling to to grasp that um anyway we could speak all day about that um so to wrap up joe conscious of time um a couple of questions for you firstly where do you see the future of ai like where are we going what's the direction of travel in your opinion yeah i mean that's a big one uh and i think you know for me uh, my thinking is is sort of in the process of changing a little bit like as much as i don't know that i believe we have sentient conversational AI yet and and some of the, there is a hype cycle in a lot of ways the big language models and the big transformers are doing very compelling things now and so I think we are undergoing in a deep learning sense another one of these mini revolutions where we're starting to see how to apply this model architecture now to a whole range of problems that it, it wasn't necessarily developed for at first right so just some really interesting papers about um, using the transformer architecture to, you know, solve uh, it, it, what you might otherwise solve as reinforcement learning problems, like where, where you, you know, might teach a computer to play a game or something. And, and reinforcement learning has been a very powerful technique, but it's also a very pain in the neck technique. And, and it and it learns slowly. It takes a lot of work to get it to be successful. And, and so now restructuring some of these problems as supervised problems against a transformer, like that, those are really interesting ideas. So, so I'm definitely seeing those models start to propagate into new places and i think i think we will see unexpected gains and i actually don't know like i'm almost ex most excited because i don't know what where to expect those gains yet uh but we are also seeing these models get really good at writing code themselves so there's you know you, you can take one of these models and enter them in a competitive programming competition and they will succeed to the level of the 65% level of human coders, right? There's a great paper out on this uh, about a year, maybe six months to a year ago. So we're getting to a point where, you know, given a language interaction, you can teach a computer to write code for you. That is very interesting. 
also potentially very dangerous, but hey, that's technology for you. Um, so so that's probably a vector that I think it'll be really fun to watch. Um, and there are you know, many others that, that I uh, will fail to even remember if we try to go too deep. But, but I think that's a, a good tidbit to think more about. Yeah, absolutely. So to wrap up then, Joe, um, give us your top three tips for anyone thinking about conversational AI, just to kind of surmise the conversation. Yeah. Uh, so be curious and learn. Don't be afraid to learn about this discipline. So, so that's one. You're, you're going to have to if you want to do it well. Don't get just one opinion. You know, Don't listen to one person. Listen to a range of people and interrogate them. Uh, and, you know, be prepared to invest a reasonable time and uh, amount of time and effort into making great experiences for the people that want to talk to you this way. You know, there's there's no free lunch. Yep, absolutely. Perfect. Well, Joe, look, um, we really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, very conscious of your time so that you can kickstart your morning on the West Coast. And um we look forward to uh, seeing how the rest of your journey unfolds and uh, speak to you again soon. Thanks, Cal. It's been great to talk. Right. appreciate it. Cheers. Bye-bye. Bye. That's it for the very final episode of season two on Driven by Data, the podcast. I can't believe that's another 50 episodes in the bag, which accompany the first 50 episodes from season one. We'll be back with season three, kicking off in about a month or so's time. Uh, and we hope you've enjoyed this season.